Hello and welcome to the Faculty Podcast, covering the latest breakthroughs, research, news and insight delivered by the world's leading academic and industry figures. Thanks to Richards. Yeah, I suppose that, that was a pretty powerful ideology that um, really weighed on American politics for many decades. But boy, it's pretty exhausted these days, especially when you look at the way life presents itself to millennials uh, who got slammed by the 2008 global financial crisis. And then again, now they're uh, essentially no job market to, 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 uh, to graduate into if they're coming out of college and very f- major economic collapse in the, in the wake of the COVID crisis. Um, and I think that explains uh, the growing interest in radical change and the ideas of socialism amongst younger people in many advanced capitalist economies around the world, starting with the United States. As surprising as it seems, it does uh, uh, to many of us, uh, socialism seems like a word on the lips of many young people as they're looking for some way to envisage a, a better world. So my main audience in writing this book was these younger people, the ones who are attracted to Bernie Sanders' campaign, to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's talk of socialism, and trying to explain to them uh, why I felt that uh, if we're going to overcome the big problems we face and not just mitigate their symptoms, we're going to need to move in a pretty radical way from a capital system based on firms that compete for profits in the marketplace to a socialist system based on socialized ownership and democratic economy-wide planning. So um, you might ask, you know, the 99% economy, but how, come the economy how come this economy is working so brilliantly for the 1%? Um, I would say that the the reason I call this the 99% economy is because indeed it seems like we have all the resources and the technology we need for everybody to lead a decent life, a satisfying life. But the wealth we produce with all those resources is captured by the 1% who own the means by which we produce this wealth. So I'll, just, I'll give you a, a couple of little factoids. Right? Eight people of whom six are now in the US own as much in assets as the entire bottom half of the world's population. Let that sink in for a second. In the, in the US itself, the richest 1% holds half of all stocks and mutual funds. They hold, hold nearly two-thirds of all equity and business. Um, so it, I think what's a little confusing for people is that there's been a lot of talk these days about an increase in inequality, um, and that increase has been quite dramatic in the United States, as in many other countries. But my argument is that this inequality is baked into the foundations of capitalism. Um, the fundamental inequality that we face is the inequality between those who produce the wealth of a country uh, and, if they're lucky, get paid enough to get by on in the process of doing that, and those who own the means of producing that wealth and who get to siphon off all the difference between the prices they charge and the costs they incur in doing it. The profits, in other words, the profits flow to the 1%. And that even during decades of relative growth and shared prosperity, that discrepancy between uh, the 1% and the 99% was huge. So uh, my indictment is not of neoliberal capitalism, financialized capitalism. My indictment is not of capitalism in its perverted form that we see in so many countries around the world today, starting with the United States. But my indictment is of capitalism as such. Because if you widen your historical perspective, you see that over the course of the history of capitalism, the degree of inequality has waxed and waned, has increased and decreased in a pretty cyclical way, always leaving the vast majority of the wealth of society in the hands of the 1%. And then for the other 99%, well, it hasn't worked very well. Um, 
uh, it, I suppose it worked well enough so long as living standards were inching upwards and people felt that their kids would probably get to lead a better life than they had. But clearly that growth has stalled a few decades ago. Maybe Australia is a bit of an, ex an exception given your natural resources and China's demand for them. But if you scratch the surface and look at the deeper problems we face, uh, we've got some pretty serious problems that all, I think I identify six of them in my book, that I think all uh, represent genuine crises that weigh on our futures and that uh, none of which can be resolved so long as we retain that capitalistic core of the economy. So let me just walk through the main elements of the main crises that I see. So first, economic irrationality. Um, and you'll forgive me if my examples come from the US, uh, that need to be nuanced for Australia, but I think the basic pattern of facts are, is similar. Working people uh, in capitalist economies live with a pervasive sense of economic insecurity. In the United States, 40% of Americans couldn't cover an emergency expense of even $400 without borrowing money or selling some of their possessions. Some 20% of American adults aren't able to pay their current month's bills in full. Some quarter of all adults in America skipped necessary medical care because they couldn't afford the cost. I could go on, but you get the general idea. I would say the economic insecurity, uh, consider the unemployment rate. Yes, it fluctuates up and down, and there's been a period, some periods of decades where it's been pretty modest, but the reality is that more than one in 10 working people have been unemployed for extended periods of time in the 1870s, the, 18, the 1890s, the 1930s, the 1980s, and then again in the wake of the 2008 collapse, and not to speak of right now. So that risk of unemployment, the economic insecurity of capitalism is really quite deeply ingrained, and um, it's, you know, those of us who have a comfortable monthly salary forget what life is like uh, for the vast majority of our fellow citizens who live with this insecurity. Economic irrationality is also a function of the massive waste that capitalist systems generate. Something like 50 million metric tons of electronic waste each year, most of it toxic, we generate. We have all sorts of products that are very profitable for the companies that produce them, but really bad for you. Junk food, cigarettes, not to speak of opioids and so forth. Um, we've got massive expenditures in advertising that uh, chew up lots of working people's time and yield no va value in the quality of our lives. We have a proliferation of disposable, unrepairable and Me Too products that represent a massive waste of effort and energy. And then alongside all this waste, you've got these massive areas of want. We want, we need a system of public transportation. We need, we need dramatically to shift away from internal combustion engine towards electric cars. Why are they not forthcoming? Well, because it's not profitable under capitalism. Uh, we need desperately cures for the diseases that poor people around the world suffer, such as malaria and tuberculosis, but our pharmaceutical companies don't give a damn about those diseases because there's not enough profit in it. So they prefer to invest their R&D efforts into producing pharmaceuticals for very uh, highly profitable diseases of the rich, like cancer and heart disease. Let's talk about the second, oh, the, excuse me, the, yes, the second big crisis area. I call it workplace disempowerment. We forget the enormous waste of human creativity uh, involved in a capitalistic workplace. Um, the Gallup organization conducts polls of uh, many American firms, indeed around the world. So over 50% of employees in American firms today are not engaged in their work, are not psychologically invested in their work. And another 16% and another are actively disengaged. 
So what is the different? What difference does engagement matter? What it make in the in, in to our economy, to our lives? Well, it's people who spend eight hours a day doing stuff that they don't give a damn about. That's a huge waste of human potential. And then just in terms of economic output, uh, the Gallup folks have shown that the top quartile of firms with the highest level of engagement have 70% fewer safety problems, 40% fewer product defects, 17% higher productivity, 21% higher profitability than those firms where the workers' engagement is in the bottom quartile. So this waste of human potential is massive. The third big crisis area is just the unresponsiveness of our governments. Uh, political scientists have shown that uh, legislation often passes when business and rich business interests and rich people want it to pass, even even over the opposition of public opinion, large majorities of public opinion. But the reverse almost never happens. Um, most Americans want more rather than guess, less government intervention when it comes to energy policy, the environment, healthcare, job growth. They want more rather than less government action on providing a decent standard of living for elderly people, ensuring food and drug safety, stuff like that. The next big crisis area, I called it social disintegration. It's a manifold series of crises that seems to be ever expanding and deepening. We've got pervasive, persistent discrimination against women in the workplace, violence against women or uh, both in and outside the workplace. We have persistent discrimination against ethnic and racial minorities. Given the economic tensions bearing in on working class families, the level of stress has gotten out of control. Some quarter of all American adults report extreme stress, trying to juggle these work and home responsibilities. Uh, our criminal justice system, let's not even talk about that. That may be a peculiarly American problem. Our racial disparities, the disparities in the treatment of street crime versus white collar crime, maybe that's an American problem. Uh, but clearly, we're not doing very well in terms of the building the social infrastructure uh, in a way that affords people equity, and equity in their opportunities. And international conflict would be another big crisis area. Here at a time in our planet where we so badly need international cooperation to deal with environmental issues, what have we got? We've got international rivalries. We've got America refusing to, uh, to reduce its CO2 emissions unless China commits to to. We've also got even more dangerous problems on the, the, the closer to the uh, immediate horizon. Our nuclear arsenals remain on hair trigger alert, aimed at cities in Russia and China. And we've got three million children a year who die of starvation around the world. Uh, and it's not for lack of food that we could get them, lack of international cooperation to get it to these kids. And I think perhaps the biggest of the crises we face, the most urgent and most massive, is the environmental crisis. Um, Humanity's using, or the, I should say the richest part of humanity is using the planet's natural resources at a rate some 60% faster than they can be replenished. In the United States here, we're consuming the world's resources seven times faster than the sustainable rate. And then of course, climate change. Um, unless we dramatically reduce carbon emissions, sea level rises are likely to displace 1 billion people worldwide by the end of the century. Some 13 to 20 million people in the US alone. So we, we face a massive crisis at the, uh, in, in climate change. How are we going to resolve it? So my argument here for socialism is based on a fairly simple analysis, and that's that we can certainly imagine governments doing a lot more to deal with the environmental crisis and to deal with all the other five crises that I just outlined, the crisis of economic insecurity, 
of workplace disempowerment, of unresponsive government, social disintegration, international conflict. Progressive, more social democratic style governments could indeed mitigate many of these problems, but I don't think they can overcome them. We've got very good reasons to believe that they can't overcome them. And let me explain why. And perhaps the simplest way to explain it is with the climate crisis. Our climate scientists tell us that we need to get to net zero carbon emissions by 2050 in order to have some chance of avoiding chaotic breakdown of civilization. Okay, 2050, that sounds like an interesting aggressive time horizon, except that's way too late because the wealthier countries like, the, like Australia and the United States need to fully decarbonize much faster than that by at least, by at the latest, 2030, in order to accommodate the inevitably lower, slower rate of decarbonization in poorer countries like India, China. In order to meet that 2030 goal, industry will be forced to abandon or rebuild trillions of dollars of assets. That means, firstly, it means shutting down the fossil fuel companies in the United States, massively powerful companies like Chevron, ExxonMobil, Peabody Coal. But it's not just the fuel, fossil fuel companies themselves. It's also massively the transforming the working assets of companies whose products run on oil. General Motors, Boeing, United Airlines, Federal Express. Further afield, we have vast swaths of the economy whose products and processes all contribute massively to climate change and who they too need to be radically transformed. Agriculture, cement and construction, mining, forest products, water systems, chemicals, plastics. The fossil fuel economy is really pervasive and needs to be uprooted if we've got any chance of saving civilization on the planet. And I, I don't even mention for now the massive infrastructure effort we're going to have to invest to build up a more resilient systems of energy, water, transportation, sea walls to protect us against rising sea levels and extreme weather. Um, now, take the measure of how much of a challenge this is to business as usual. It's pretty obvious that companies can't be expected to undertake those changes voluntarily or by themselves just because for the good of humanity. But it's also obvious that government, were government to implement the kind of regulations required to drive this massive change so rapidly, it would essentially bankrupt massive swaths of, of industry. And whether, whether there's a social democratic government or a more conservative government makes no difference. The reality is the cost of this transition will bankrupt many, many, many firms across many parts of the economy. And that you can't do as long as you're maintaining a capitalist core of the economy. Uh, you know, we, we the only way we can manage a transition this big, this urgent, is to socialize the ownership of industry, of agriculture, socialize the ownership of it, would give us the control that we need in order to plan a comprehensive overhaul of our systems of industry and agricultural production. So I get it. The, the, the prospect of economy-wide planning by, uh, by government is very scary for a lot of people. Uh, it evokes images of the old uh, Soviet Union with its authoritarian government, economic stagnation, people queued up waiting for basic foodstuffs. It's a pretty scary prospect and certainly not one that I'd be advocating. So the second half of my book tries to explain how we could have economy-wide planning on a socialized foundation um, and ensure that it operates democratically and effectively. Um, how do I do this? Um, the, the thesis of the book is that, uh, again, while reforming capitalism would be an, a very welcome first step, we're not going to be able to overcome our big crises unless we undertake this much more radical change. And that if we want an image of what that economy-wide planning might look like, we could do, 
We could do a lot worse than looking inside some of our big corporations. These big corporations, if you think about it for a second, most of them operate internally like planned economies. They don't let the business units within the corporation compete against each other. They develop what they call a strategic plan so as to ensure that all the business units within the corporation contribute to the overall goals of the business. Overall goals like profitability and market share and so forth. But they do draw all the units of the organization into that planning exercise. And in many of these big corporations, they actually reach quite far down into the organization in order to come up with creative ideas for how to, uh, how to pursue those corporate-wide goals and identify the constraints that the units might encounter in trying to reach those goals and develop a comprehensive plan that enables everyone to work together within the corporation to advance those goals. Now, those goals today are profitability goals, and so there's not much room for input from the front lines, the, from the factory floor or the office floor in how to pursue those goals. There's, not, there's a little bit of a contradiction, tension but in interest between those who run the corporation on behalf of the shareholders and the workers on the shop floor on the front lines. Uh, but the process of planning that these firms have created we could easily imagine democratizing that a lot further if these enterprises were transformed from private enterprise into public enterprise, if the ownership was socialized and the, and, and the development of this strategic plan were democratized, made open to the input of other stakeholders. Um, and if we scale it up, so now we're using the strategic management process that these firms have refined over the decades. We're using that same strategic management process to plan the economies of our entire regions, cities, states, entire industries, uh, the automobile industry, the energy industry. So my idea is fairly straightforward. It's, um, it's very hard to imagine a process of socialized economy, democratic planning, because we are so marked by the history, the terrible history of authoritarian socialism of the 20th century. But if we want an image that, uh, that might make that, that concept a bit more concrete for people, we, uh, we could do worse than look inside these big capitalist corporations. I would say perhaps the challenge is a real one. I, I, I totally sympathize why people feel like this sort of radical shift from capitalist economies to more socialist economies is very difficult to envisage. I, I would, uh, I think our challenge in him is really a challenge to our imaginations of the same kind as Aristotle faced in ancient Greece. Aristotle was a big fan of democracy, but, for the, but he couldn't imagine how democratic decision-making rights could be extended to women, let alone slaves, without democracy degenerating into chaos. I think we have a bit the same problem today, imagining how we could extend democratic decision-making from the narrowly political realm to the economic realm. The challenge to our imaginations is, is a big one, but I think uh, if we put our minds to it, uh, we can make our paths to a, towards a much better world where we can come to grips with these six major crisis tendencies, overcome them by asserting our democratic rights over the productive resources of the world and ensure everybody a decent standard of living and a, a decent life. So that, in summary, is a thesis of my book. <laughs>